0: of 2020, we will never forget, never, ever will we forget this year. Praise God for that. Father, we just exalt you today, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. We are here to bear witness that you are the one true living God. We recognize you as that. And we thank you and we praise you for opening our eyes. We thank you and we praise you for calling us, for adopting us, for inviting us into the master's house. There's no way to express our gratitude, Lord. But we pray that you would receive this gathering of the saints as an expression of our gratitude, an expression of our belief, of our faith, of our trust, of our desire, of our love for you and for each other. We pray that you would be glorified in this gathering we pray that your will would be done we pray for sanctification by your word and may your word come forth with clarity and accomplish its purpose we pray for ears to hear in the spirit pray for soft hearts to receive When we pray for a harvest to come. I praise you this morning, Father, for these saints, For the joy it is to get to take this journey together. Pray you continue to bless and protect their families. We thank you for your blessing and your protection. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you have called us your own. We pray today that we would come to know you more, see and hear you more clearly. Understand you better. Pray that today we would come to love you better, love each other better. Thank you for the Feast of Tabernacles, Lord. Thank you for the time to come of rejoicing before the Lord. We thank you for the experience we just had of rejoicing before the Lord. What, a, what an unbelievable time. Thank you, Lord, for my, my heart being so full right now. My, my joy being so real, my hope being so real. Thank you for all the love in this room. It's all a testimony to your goodness, to your realness. We thank you for that air conditioning. We thank you for this space. We thank you for Summit Church. Thank you for Jeremy and Katie. Every other good thing that you are the source of, we praise and worship you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right. Someone read for us Genesis three, twenty two through twenty four. How many of you know Jackson read that specifically because there was a sword in it? <laughs> Good reading, bud. So what did God just do? Banished him from the garden. Let's, let's have a brief discussion on why he did that. All right. Um, so I'm going to ask a series of questions and get some answers. And we're going to kind of put together some understanding about why God did what he did in Genesis 3. First question is, what is sin? Okay, I like both those answers. The word gives us very specifically what sin is in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. says, he who practices sin practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. So the reason that knowing that text is so important, again, that was First John chapter 3, verse 4. He who practices sin practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. The reason that is so important is because we want to never mistake sin for being anyone's definition but God's. The Word of God and the Word of God alone tells us what sin is, and it's only God's opinion that matters. It's not culture's call, it's not America's call, it's not the church's call, and it sure as heck isn't your or my call. God and God alone define sin. God and God alone gets to define what sin is. And and when he says sin is lawlessness, he's saying something very specific. And if you need a a handle to remember, just remember the the word that's found in the middle of lawlessness is what? Law. Because, Because sin is very specifically transgressing God's laws. All right. That and that alone is what sin is. Transgressing. God's divine commandments and the reason that definition is important is because it it kind of falls on sort of both sides of God's commandments meaning if God commands us to not do something and we keep doing it that's lawlessness therefore that is sin that one's the one I think we kind of remember the most but we also need to remember that if god commands us to do something and we choose to not do it that also is lawlessness because that is transgressing god's divine commandments therefore that also is sin does that make sense we got to remember it on both sides and if we remember sin as being the transgression of his commandments and we and we root it in his laws that helps at least it helps me to remember i gotta i gotta Obey on both sides. The things that aren't for me, I gotta get rid of, and the things that are for me, I gotta add. When I choose to not do those things or disobey, that's sin. Okay, so question number two is, uh, why did God give us the commandments? It's, it's, it's so that you and I have some behaviors that we can engage so that we can earn God's love. Right? No. That is very wrong. Okay, God loved us way before we behaved in any way, shape, or form. God's commandments are not so that we can earn God's love. Okay, God's commandments must be then so that we can behave a certain way in order to earn our salvation. Right? No. Very specifically, not why God gave us his commandments so that we could behave a certain way to earn our salvation. Those two things are not why God gave us his commandments. God loved loved us first and gave us his commandments way before we could earn anything. Or accomplish anything or do anything for him. So the question remains, why did God give us his commandments? Any thoughts? What's that, Angie? Okay. Okay. What are you going to say, baby? Okay. Exactly right. If One of the best ways we can, or perhaps one of the closest ways we can understand how the Father feels about us is how we feel about our own kids, those of us that have. So um, I've got some laws in place, for lack of a better way to put it, in the, the SAS home that are sourced by my love for my kids. And I have given my kids these specific laws in order for them to, live, as Angie said, the best life possible. There are laws that are gonna um, protect them. There are laws that are gonna preserve them. There are laws that are gonna um, align them with how our house sees things and understands things. And they're, they're, in a, they're, a, they're sourced by my love and, and for my kids to walk in them is one of the ways that they are going to experience my love for them. That makes sense. So this is, I think, what the author of First John uh, is writing when in chapter two, verse three through five. I'll read real quick. First John chapter two, verses three through five. Uh, verse we read last week. By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not found in him. Verse five, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is what perfected in him. So, so the love that God has for us is real in one of the tangible ways that we actually experience it and see it perfected in our lives is by walking in his commandments. That makes sense? It's like this giant hug from the Lord. In order to experience that hug, we walk in his ways. And somehow, some way, or perhaps because he is the maker and creator and designer of all things, and has perfect wisdom and perfect understanding and perfect knowledge about all things and has a desire for mankind that is perfect, perhaps it's just, he's that good. And when we, work, when we walk in his ways, somehow, some way, we sort of take hold of exactly how good he is and exactly how real his love is and exactly how wonderful his ways are. So if sin is to transgress God's ways, his commandments, and if his ways are the expression of his love for us, and one of the primary ways in which we experience his love, then this should help us to answer the question, why does God hate sin? It does. It does. The the simple... Understanding that the Lord kind of gave me this morning is sin hurts us. God hates sin because sin hurts us. Again, think about your kids. I've yet to have to experience it. Hopefully I never will. But but if one of my kids fell into a, a very sinful practice. And I had to watch what that sinful practice did to them again and again and again and again. Would that stir up in me a hatred for that thing, that sin, that practice, that idol, that addiction, yes. the most real <laughs> hatred, right? The most tangible hatred there could be. Well, that's, exactly how God feels about sin because it does the same thing for us sin only hurts us sin only confuses us sin only brings about pain and regret and strife and struggle and suffering and not the good kind so does it make sense for God to hate sin? Does it make sense for God to compel us to be removed from sin and to be removed from sinful behavior and to be removed from sinful practice and to be removed from sinful habits? Absolutely. And I think all of this is to help the saints today get our head around the reality that whenever God calls us out of sin, he's never trying to limit our joy. He's never trying to limit our happiness or our life in any way. You hearing me? When God calls us out of sin or sinful behavior, it's never because he's trying to limit our pleasure or our relationships or our experiences in this age. It's always only because anything that is a transgression of God's commandments can only bring pain every time. So let me, let me word it a different way just to um, make sure that you're, that you're all hearing me correctly. Um, when I say God hates sin, it's because sin hurts us. And sin causes suffering and pain and confusion and regret and conflict and consequences. And ultimately sin causes death. So when I say sin there, it's easy to kind of divorce ourselves from it. So let's get even more precise, and in, 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 in let me put it this way the not keeping of God's commandments, God hates that. Because when we don't keep God's commandments, it hurts us. When we don't keep God's commandments, it causes suffering. When we don't keep God's commandments, it causes pain and consequence and conflict and confusion and ultimately death. You hear me? So, so, that is a, so let's go back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And not only did he remove them from the garden, but he cut off their access to returning to it. And based on the little exercise we just went through, let's answer the question, why did he do that? Why did he kick him out of the garden? Any thoughts now? Now. Good. Everyone here, Angie, a holy God cannot and will not ever tolerate sin. A holy God will never excuse it. A holy God will never turn a blind eye. A holy God will never show quarter or mercy or agreement or partnership or neutrality in any way towards sin. Any belief about God that we have that thinks that he is okay with sin is 100% deception. He cannot and will not tolerate it. So for Adam and Eve to have sinned and fallen into a sinful state, that would have polluted their relationship with that holy God forever. And God's love for us is so real, and his desire for relationship with us is to be so pure and so unpolluted and so undivided that he would never, ever, ever allow for that fallenness to remain, for that divided heart to remain, for that separation of any kind to remain. So what had to be done? Separation. And, and, and what about the angel with the flaming flashing sword? What was that angel's job specifically? So they don't come back to what in particular? Tree of life. Because the tree of life offers what? Eternal life. Right? He says specifically cut them off from the tree of life so they don't have an opportunity to do what? Live forever. Because God would never allow his love for us is too real and too perfect and too pure and too uncompromising to ever allow us to live forever with even a molecule of fallenness in us. A single atom of sin or sin nature. That's how pure God's love is. That's how real this holy God loves his own. make sense so what does that have to do with today well um i'm telling you the moadim of 2020 we will never forget every single one of them have been so unprecedented so unique so perfect And I went back this morning and I looked through a couple of the teachings we've done on this day and over the past few years, the kind of the clarity that the Lord brought regarding the Feast of Tabernacles the last uh, three years, I think I looked and it's, it's just remarkable to me how each year the revelation is clear, made clear, the revelation is refined, the revena- re- revelation is deeper and more thorough and more targeted in each of the revelations this year on each of the holy days have absolutely been that, at least I know they have for our family. Remarkable clarity, remarkable understanding, remarkable truth to bring about remarkable next steps. And so I had a met expectation this morning that there was going to be another sort of layer of understanding regarding tabernacles. And sure enough, yeah, the Lord provided. So I just pray one more time, Father, that you would just give us ears to hear what the spirit of the living God has for your saints today. as we are gathered for a sacred assembly to kick off the feast of tabernacles 2020 we pray that your perfect design for this time your perfect perspective your perfect teaching your perfect understanding your perfect leadership and your perfect will would be done. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive in Jesus' name. So um, the prescription for Feast of Tabernacles is Leviticus 23, 33 through 44. My guess is you've all read it coming into today. Probably have read it multiple times, and so I'll go through this quickly. All of the Moedim are appointed by God as specific times to either recognize and engage things within the larger redemptive story that have already happened. Specifically Passover and the crucifixion, first fruits and the resurrection, Pentecost, giving of the law, the giving of the spirit. All those have already happened. Those are the spring Moedim, the fall. Moedim are events that are yet to happen within the large redemptive story, specifically Feast of Trumpets signifying the, the return of Christ that we read about in Revelation 19, the Day of Atonement signifying judgment coming to all the earth, and specifically the White Throne of Judgment in Revelation chapter 20, and then Feast of Tabernacles, essentially the age to come. We read about in Revelation 21 and 22 the culmination of God's plan, the fulfillment of his eternal desires and the reason we are all here. The reason for our hope, the reason for our joy, the reason for our love, the reason for our sacrifice, the reason for our obedience, the reason for our commitment, the reason for our endurance and perseverance and every other thing that the Spirit leads us into is for the culmination of God's plan. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the renewing of heaven and earth, or specifically, the new heaven and the new earth and tabernacles is a time in which we envision and anticipate that the promised future for all who have received the inheritance of the Spirit of God, which guarantees a full inheritance. So we know that all of the Moa'dim are prescribed for the reasons that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. It helps align the saints of God with the God of the Bible. The adopted sons and daughters with the master's business It's just one of the invitations and one of the tools in which Father God invites us into his plan and into his will. It helps it helps as a as a teaching tool teaching the full gospel message, the complete gospel message, the creation wide larger redemptive story the story which has required three absolutely singular events to take place that we recognize and practice prescriptions to engage so we know them so we can teach them to our kids so that we can walk in them more fully and three events yet to come that will signify the beginning of and ultimate culmination of God's plan we are given these times because God wants us prepared As a bride is to be prepared for her bridegroom, God wants us prepared for what's coming. He wants us to know what it sounds like. He wants us to know what's the expectation, and he wants us to know the ultimate outcome. Each of these times and each of the prescriptions for engagement of them are perfect. Perfect to open our eyes. Perfect to align us with the Father. Perfect to help us teach him to our kids perfect from a protection standpoint so we don't take these times and take these things and turn them in on ourselves make this about us how good we are, how holy we are, how much we know like Saul did what's he say Uh, praise be to God I have obeyed the Lord's command no you didn't You took God's command and you made it about yourself. And you used it to promote yourself and glorify yourself and give you what you want. So as we follow these prescriptions, we're saved from doing that. We're protected from doing that. Tabernacles is a big one, saints. It's a big one to remain focused that this is God's will and God's plan and God's purpose. Especially when we look at the prescription being to Rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Right? What's that sound like? An invitation to a party. Well, that's not altogether wrong. It's not altogether right. And part of the understanding the Lord gave me Over the last week, I want to share because I think it's real important. I think it's very much for us. I think it's very much to protect us from something that is likely happening. Talk louder. Okay, so this is a seven-day feast. Commanded Sabbath on the first day. That's today. That's this. Praise God. Two high Sabbaths, this particular Tabernacle—that's a rare thing. So it con- concludes next Saturday, where we will have a, an actual feast at the course and home. Details to follow. We won't talk about that today. But this is a time of rejoicing before the Lord, and there's really two purposes. Two purposes. It's both a looking back as well as a looking forward. And the looking back piece is to remember what the Lord did for the children of Israel in Egypt. How he led them out of the bondage and captivity to Pharaoh into the wilderness and led them through the wilderness on a journey towards the promised land. During that time, they were dwelling in booths, quite literally. And so the the reminder piece, the looking back piece is to dwell in booths for a week and to remember as we take that story and understand it as both literal and real, as well as a type and shadow for what we are currently find ourselves in. Having been set free by the blood of a true and blemished land from the slavery and captivity of sin we are now, ha, praise God, wandering through the desert as we follow the pillar of smoke and fire to the true promised land. This is, a, this is a time to remember that this is not our home, to remember that this is not where we stop and set up shop, put down roots, invest everything because this is not our world this is not our home this is not our destiny this is not our eternity this is not our promised land and so what a beautiful prescription to say for a week every year remember check your hold on this world check how much of your heart belongs to this world check how deep your roots are going Check how comfortable you're getting. What a powerful practice. What a powerful prescription. What an incredibly valuable thing to be reminded of every year. So... I think it was a year or two ago I think it was two years ago I made mention of kind of an interesting truth regarding the age to come and that is that there's not a lot of information we're given about it the You know, the entirety of this text points towards the age to come. And this is, I don't know how many pages it is. In my Bible, almost 2,000 pages. And there's like four pages on the age to come. I don't know how many chapters there are in here, but there's basically two chapters given to the saints of God describing the age to come. And most of it, by the way, is way over my head. Difficult to interpret, difficult to understand. And a couple of years ago, I expressed my frustration with that. Like I wish we had more to go off of because I can see in the body of Christ so much confusion. So much of a lack of understanding of what are we what are we moving towards? Is it something to even look forward to? What about it should I look forward to? Like I just don't know what new heaven and new earth is. And I and I go to the text and I read a couple of pretty confusing chapters, and it doesn't help me a whole lot. And I got sort of this. I think, Holy Spirit download, and it was essentially, um, it's too good. It's too good and too undescribable. There's nothing to even give you because you couldn't comprehend it. And the, and the kind of the example was, uh, for those of us that have been to Africa, and um, could be in a conversation with a, a young man or a young woman that has only lived their entire life in a grass hut village. And to try and go to that person and describe to them what Anthem is like would be very difficult. Like there would be things that we would want to describe or want to tell them that they just could not comprehend. And I feel like that's sort of how the Spirit helped me reconcile why we aren't given more. I think it's just too much and too amazing and too beautiful and too perfect that our language wouldn't be sufficient and our minds couldn't comprehend it. And so that then led me to a a little bit better understanding of what we are given, because what we are given in the text, almost more than anything else is what the age to come is not going to include. And it makes sense because I could see that same sort of strategy for explanation taking place in Africa because I could say to that young man or young woman well there there won't be any malaria you won't have to worry about that and there won't be any of this you know whatever they're dealing with all of the ugliness and pain and suffering that they're dealing with I could tell them it's not none of that's gonna be there and that's almost the only thing we get about the age to come. From a specific detail standpoint, the word is very clear about what will not be there. So let's read it. Let's read a couple. First one is Revelation 21 and verse 4. Someone read that for us. Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying or pain. And we, all these things are gone forever. Is that good? Yes. Read that one more time, Lizzie. This is what will not be in the age to come. Okay, Revelation 21, verse 27 tells us some more of what will not be there. But there shall be no means entered in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Read that one more time. This is the Spirit of God giving us understanding of what will not be in the age to come. But there shall by no means Lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. One more, verse 22, I'm sorry, chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, please. This is on the last page of the Bible. Okay, read that one more time, Val, and then I'm going to give you it. Yep, hold on, hold on, hold on. Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two words. And this is, if you hear nothing else, these are the two words you're going to remember. Okay, and these are the two words that I believe the Lord has given us for our focus tabernacles. Okay. Is this the only focus? Absolutely not. Is this all encompassing focus? Absolutely not. Is the spirit just giving us one specific thing for this congregation for this year for this tabernacles? Yes, that's what I believe this is. All right. Before I give you what it is, we've got to hear and we got to know there's something in the age to come that is not there. It will not be there it cannot be there right what it will be what will be there probably too much for us to even comprehend so the Lord's given us what won't be there the last one Val 15, 15 14 and 15 Isn't it amazing, by the way, how similar Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are? It is literally a story that comes full circle. And what we see in the beginning is a separation of God from anything that is unholy, impure, tainted by sin. Right? He will not tolerate it. And so what we see in the end makes sense that we see a perfect culmination of God's plan and something has to be on the outside of that. The same thing that's always had to be on the outside of that. Right? And that's what? Sin. Sin is not present in the age to come. Listen to me, saints. Sin is not present in the age to come. Your sin... Is not present in the age to come. My sin is not present in the age to come. My idols, my deceptions, my counterfeits, my compromises, anything in my life that dishonors or disobeys or goes against the will of the Father is not present in the age to come. It is not present, it is not welcome, it cannot stand. Okay? So tabernacles, this is what the Lord gave me. Val, read verse 15 again. Listen to how it ends. That's all right. Just 15. Correct. What will Outside. not be welcome in the age to come? Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Practices. practices. Okay? So tabernacles is about practicing perfect. Tabernacles will be a week, saints, in which we practice living now, in this age, how we will live in the age to come. We don't know all of what that will involve. Listen to me. We don't know all of what that will involve. But we absolutely know what it will not involve. And here's how the Lord gave me this revelation. It started back the night before the Day of Atonement. So actually it started on the Day of Atonement because it was after nightfall. And I'm going to be just brutally honest with you guys because the Lord dealt with me. And it was because... um, I have a general understanding of what the Day of Atonement is for. Praise God that the Moedim, in their perfection, in their prescriptions, in their timing, has given me some understanding of the Day of Atonement and the purpose of it, and the, affl- and the prescription to afflict myself and to deny myself and to go before the Lord in repentance. recognizing that I'm going to stand before him and have my books opened. Both the book of life and the book of deeds. And I'm going to be judged by one standard, and that's the perfect law of God. And for me to recognize today that I will have that date with the Father in the future is incredibly powerful, incredibly sobering, and incredibly powerful. And so I'm just going to be totally honest. I didn't want to do it. I went to bed on, on that Friday night. Um, I, I was planning to go before the Lord Saturday morning. And, and we, we had our gathering here at 10s, and I knew I couldn't do what needed to be done in that gathering. And I still don't really know why we gathered that day, to be honest. What's that? Or on, on Monday then. Yeah, I'm sorry, on Monday. I don't have clarity yet on why we gather. Because what I know on that day is I got to go before the Lord alone. And it's got to be in the desert because it's not going to be pretty for me. And I, and I remember going to bed on that night, not wanting to do it. And it was funny because I actually thought about, I can't wait for tabernacles. There's no hesitation for tabernacles. Like I'm reaching for it. I'm longing for it. So I was like, I don't want to go before the Lord. I don't want to go confess. And I don't want to go repent. And that's going to be ugly. And that's going to be painful, and that's going to be humiliating. And it started with. Um, it started with. The Lord showing me. Um, day of Atonement is one day. And it is a day to afflict yourself and it is a somber occasion and it is going to be painful but but somehow way, he just showed me that's one day and tabernacles is 8 days and it was the it was the beginning of a of a layer of understanding him opening my eyes to that you you got to follow my prescriptions first and foremost, and you got to do what I ask you to do in the order that I ask you to do them. And if you do, if you will, one day of affliction will turn into eight days of rejoice. And so I got to thinking, wow, that's like, that's how God constantly does things. It's constantly just... Just do this little bit and watch what happens. It's like the tithe principle, right? Just be obedient with the tenth and watch the rest be blessed. Right? It's it's really the, the perspective on this whole life. Just give me this life. Give me, serve me this life of Weeks and months and years. Sacrifice this life of weeks and months and years, and I will give you what? Eternity. God, God is just so good in every way. And so the first thing He opened my eyes to is how good He always is. And it's never an unfair deal. I'm never on the wrong side of God's deals. And I went to bed with that understanding, all right, I can, I can be obedient in this, in this, on this day, recognizing what's to come. And so I got up on, on that Monday morning and I went out to the desert and it was everything that I expected it was gonna be. and something happened even as a part of our gathering here even though I really wasn't certain about what I was supposed to be doing something happened where where God just you know how sometimes you just get like a snapshot understanding of so many things that he's piled up over the years and it was it ultimately highlighted to me the perfection of his ways. Seen so clearly in the Moedim, because the Day of Atonement is the final dealing with sin. It's the final dealing. Because in the age to come, It's not. And every idol is gone, and every deception is gone, and every counterfeit is gone, and every compromise is gone. And so then I got, I got this like, whirlwind revelation of Jeremiah chapter 10 I'm sorry Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10 anyone remember, anyone remember what that is it was the words to the prophet the six things that he as a prophet to the nations is being called to do what were they Okay, so there is a principle about the way God works. There's a, a way in which the God of the Bible does things. And it's true of every little tiny thing, and it's true of the entire cosmos. the way in which the God of the Bible operates when he gives the assignment to the prophet, it's got to fall on a line and it starts with the first thing you got to do. The first things that you have to do are what? Why? Why does it have to be those things first? Because the God of the Bible will not tolerate mixing. The God of the Bible will not build anything on a mixed or broken foundation. He will not share his glory. He will not share his worship. He will not share his name. He will not share his people and he will not share his creation. So for the prophet to be able to plant and build anything of God. First, everything not of God has got to be torn down uprooted, pulled down, destroyed, thrown down. Then and only then can something of God be planted and built. Does that fall in line with God's commandment to the Israelites regarding the promised land? 100%. Right? He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 12, and multiple other places, when you go into the land that I'm giving you to possess, what is your first order of business? Cleanse cleanse what cleanse it all what do you mean kill everything and after you kill everything burn all of their places of worship all of their idols all of their temples everything everything has got to go why because the god of the bible will not tolerate mixing he will not be worshiped with any pagan practices rituals or routines he will not share his people he will not share his land and the only way for the people of god to be obedient to that is to get rid of it all. He says, "Surely, if you mix your heart, will what turn away from me and be turned towards their gods? Why? Because every time we mix, whatever we mix is ruined. Right? Old wine and new wine, or new wine and new, an old wineskin. skin, or a patch on an old, a new patch on old clothes." It is an absolute truth of God that anything of God that gets mixed with anything of the world, both get ruined. And as soon as both get, ru- gets, get ruined, what t- happens to the heart of the individual that's mixing? Right back to the idol. So God has a solution. To mix. Remove everything that is not of me. Remove everything that is not from me. Remove everything that does not honor me. Right, The principle follows into the Gospels when, when Jesus talks about pruning. Right, What's he saying? in John 15? Any branch that is not for you, the Father does what? Prunes it, throws it into the fire. Why? Because anything that is not for you, that is not of God, has got to be removed. As it is removed, then the fruit can come. It's the same principle over and over and over and over. It's Jesus saying, look, if you want to follow me... If you want to take hold of the life that I am offering you, you have to do one thing first. And what is that? Leave your old life. You can't take hold of the promises of God while you stay in Egypt. It's impossible. Okay? So listen to me, saints. You can't move on into the age, of, into the age to come and bring any idols with you. You realize that? You and I will not drag into the age to come any idols. No sin, no deception, no practices, no counterfeits, no compromises of any kind will be taken into the age to come. So what a beautiful, perfect prescription for the people of God if we would just align with and stick with what's written. What is supposed to happen at the Day of Atonement? What is the prescription for us to go before the Lord and do what? Repent. And if we truly and authentically go before the Lord in repentance, what do you think he's going to reveal to us? Everything. Every idol, every deception, every counterfeit, everything that is not for us is going to be revealed. And on that day, we have the prescription and we have the invitation to just lay it at the Father's feet. Watch the gardener do the pruning. And why is that so important? Why is it so critical that the Day of Atonement and the prescriptions for it follows right before tabernacles? What is the purpose of tabernacles? Practicing the age to come. What's going to happen in the age to come? No sin. No idolatry. No counterfeits. No compromise, no divided hearts, no strife, no gossip, no conflict, no drunkenness, no anger, no bitterness, no, none of it. None of it will follow us into the age to come. So what a beautiful prescription for us to practice this every year. Because here's what will happen, saints, and here's what I almost fell victim to. And this is where I'm just going to get honest. I was this close to blowing off the Day of Atonement. I was going to go out to the desert because I actually enjoy that. And I could go out there and do some worship and do some reading and no one would know the difference no one would be the wiser come in here and have our holy convocation and had i done that had i had i ignored the prescription and done that i would have been robbed of something super super specific and that is the the gift to move into a seven-day feast not having repented of the things that the Lord is telling me right now are not for me. The things that the Lord is telling me right now have are robbing me in my life, not, are not honoring him, are not for me anymore, will not be taken into the age to come. So because I did go before the Lord, and because I did repent of those things, and because the Father does prune, Guess what? I do not have a desire to drag into the Feast of Tabernacles this year. Stuff that I have literally dragged into it in years past. Right? And if you don't follow the prescription and you haven't followed the prescription, I don't know if this year is wasted yet. Honestly, I've been praying and asking that question all morning. If someone did not in any way engage in the Day of Atonement this year, They did not follow the prescription. They did not go before the Lord. They did not have an authentic moment of repentance and pruning. Are they doomed to go into tabernacles this year dragging their idols with them? Because part of me thinks the answer is yes. And you are going to battle those idols. If you're struggling with alcohol, you're going to want to drink the whole tabernacles if you're struggling with gossip, you're going to want to gossip. If you're struggling with strife with your spouse, you're probably going to fight with your spouse the whole time. The whole time we're supposed to be doing what? Practicing the age to come. Now is God good enough and his, is His mercy amazing enough that you can repent before the Lord today and engage in the rest of tabernacles with a Pure and and contrite heart? Perhaps. I'd say go for it. But here's one thing that I can be certain of, and I pray to God that you are all as well. That come next year, as the Lord continues to open our eyes and reveal more and more and more about His holy days, that we will recognize the Day of Atonement for what it is, that we will never, ever, ever think about not following that prescription, not sticking with what's written, and not engaging it because of what it accomplishes as we move into tabernacles. Because that time is supposed to be what? Spent doing what? Rejoicing before the Lord. And I feel like the Lord is telling me, you don't even know what rejoicing before the Lord is because you have so much sin in your life you're so deceived, you're so distracted, you're so caught up in so many things that have nothing to do with me, that will have nothing to do with the age to come, that have nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. You don't even really know what rejoicing before the Lord is. Maybe in in a deep moment of worship, like we will from time to time experience, we will know what rejoicing before the Lord is when absolutely everything else is gone. Gone. Nothing else matters. There's no thought but Him. There's no focus but Him. Like, I feel like heaven is just this constant removal of all the things that were never for us. And Day of Atonement is meant to be this incredible experience of of annually just being cleansed. All of this baggage and garbage and deceptions being peeled off of us. And we're so desperate for it because we bought into this lie that it's so popular in the church today that that God accepts you right where you are. That's such a popular thought. And I think what we need to be very clear about is that God accepts us despite right where we are. And he accepts us only in Christ. And for Christ's name's sake. And he loves us way, way, way too much to ever allow us to remain where we were when he found us. To show mercy on sin? Never. Quarter for sin? Never. Blind eye? Nope. Why? He loves us that much. So our call is for sanctification, our call is to be daily renewed. Our call is to be prepared as a bride, eventually becoming spotless, the only bride the bridegroom deserves. So these fall holy days, I'm just seeing them with so much different clarity. And I just want to praise God for the beauty of his ways that are so perfect. To recognize now that this appointed time is to prepare me to practice how I will live forever, rejoicing before the Lord with an unveiled face, God, with an undivided heart. Not dragging in all my crap. Yes, ma'am. None of that will be there. No. Me. Amen. That will show me myself Amen. All the and that can and should happen on the Day of Atonement, but that can doggone happen today too. Yes. And none of us have left our homes yet, from what I can tell. Yes. So praise God if His mercy allows for that to happen today. Then do it if you did it on the day of atonement do it again there is more sin in me i know that that will no i won't even say it we are going to rejoice before the lord for seven days with the most undivided heart i've ever had towards him praise god only because of the goodness of his ways the leadership of his spirit And I pray that every one of us would have the most amazing Feast of Tabernacles we ever had. Amazing by way of alignment. Not destination, not location, not company. Alignment with the Spirit of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, sir.